Well, good evening. Thank you for persevering late at night after a number of meetings and uh, presumably a busy week ahead. But we will, we will conclude uh, with our study of Revelation. Let's just pray briefly again and ask the Lord to help us. Lord, we know the hour is late and many of us are weary, but we know that you come especially close when we are in need, and so we ask you to help us in this hour. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, we're, in, we're in chapter 15, but I want to mention something about the end of chapter 14, those two judgments that we saw, the two harvests. Notice again, both those harvests bring us to the end of history. So that's a feature I want you to see in this book over and over, that he brings us to the end, right? And he recapitulates the end. Both of those texts are talking about the final judgment. So now we come in chapters 15 and 16 to the seven bowls. We've seen the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and now we come to the seven bowls. I've, I've argued that the seven seals represent what happens throughout history, and so too the seven trumpets, when I say throughout history, from the resurrection ascension to the second coming. And uh, many interpreters argue that's true of the seven bowls as well, but, but, I'm, but I'm not convinced of that. I've, and, and I want to make a case that when we come to the seven bowls, that the seven bowls are symbolic ways of talking about the final judgment or very near the final judgment. So let, let's, we, we don't have time to look at everything, but look at how chapter 15 opens. I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, that those words remind us of how chapter 12 began. Seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last. For with them the wrath of God is finished. So I think, I think John is suggesting to us here that these, these judgments are the very end, end of, of history. So we see, verse 2, the sea of glass mingled with fire. I think that sea of glass represents God's white, hot, and intense holiness. But notice believers who'd conquered the beast and its image. They, they, why, why had they conquered? Because of the blood of the Lamb, right? Fundamentally. They, they are able, able to be in God's presence, they're able to stand beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands as the redeemed rejoicing in God's presence, singing the song of Moses, and it's also the song of the Lamb. So the song of Moses, which was sung at the Exodus, anticipates and points to the new and greater Exodus the final deliverance, the great deliverance, the supreme deliverance, which is accomplished by Jesus Christ in the new exodus. So, as we, as we just talked about on the panel, the worship that comes from being in God's presence. We hurry on to chapter 15, verse 5, the sanctuary in verse 5 of chapter 15, of the tent of witness in heaven is opened. The seven angels come out with the seven plagues, and there, there we see them with the seven bowls full of God's wrath. So it's clearly, clearly judgment. And, and we, we see in verse 8 a, a text we see both when at the building of the tabernacle, the culmination of the building of the tabernacle and the temple, when the glory of God fills the tabernacle. Do you remember those accounts in the Old Testament? And the glory of God fills the temple. Here, here we see something very similar, right? 
that the glory of God fills the heavenly tabernacle, I take it, and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. So we, we have God's glorious presence, but no one can stand in his awesome and glorious and holy presence as his wrath is about to be poured out, not on everyone, right? we've already seen the redeemed have conquered, but his wrath is about to be poured out upon the world. And so, so I'm, I'm not going to look at all seven of these uh, judgments, but I want to make my case here and there that this is the final judgment. So look, look at verse 3. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse. And every living thing died that was in the sea. Not, not a third anymore, everything. This is, the, the, the judgments, are, I take these are symbolic, right, of the final judgment, but now the judgment is comprehensive and complete. It's the last judgment. That, that, that is what he's telling us. So before, right, earlier we saw it was just a third of the sea that was affected. Same with the next one. Verse 4, the third angel poured out his blood into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. There's no, there's no indication that the judgment is partial, but now it is complete. When we think of the final judgment, when we think of God pouring his wrath out in hell, right, for people forever and ever, many people wonder if such judgments are good. Is God good? Is God fair? Is it right? Modern people, probably all through history people thought that, but seem to be particularly concerned about that. I only want to say here, the biblical writer, inspired by the Spirit, he's concerned about that too, isn't he? So this, the, the comment, right, we, we have an interruption of the narrative. So John pauses in verse 5, and I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, just are you, O holy one, who is and who was. Notice it doesn't say again, do you notice this little hint? It doesn't say again who is to come. So I, th I think that's another indication this is the final judgment. Because before, right, it was who is and who was and who is to come. Sometimes that order varies. But there's no reference to the one to come here because, he, because this is the final judgment. But you're just, for you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets. You have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. The punishment, not only for those who martyr the saints, but we can say the biblical principle is the punishment fits the crime. God, God is just. We, we need to know that, and the text emphasizes that as well. The, the, the judgments that are leveled against the world are righteous and good. Now, I could talk about this a long time. I've actually just written a little book about a biblical case for the final judgment, so I've got to avoid going there, but I, but I, but I simply want to say this. Without judgment, life makes no sense. If, if there's no assessing and judging of right and wrong, life is meaningless. Moral decisions are meaningless. So the author really wants us to hear this, doesn't he? Verse 7, I heard the altar saying, maybe, maybe an angel of the altar, of course this is apocalyptic, yes, Lord, God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. So just a practical word, when you meet God in the new creation, if you have a loved one or a friend who doesn't know Jesus, you're not going to say to God, what? <laughs> How could you punish that person, right? You will see. You will agree. 
their, their judgment, if they don't know God, is, is just. Right? You, 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 if you struggle with it now at all, you won't, you won't struggle with it then because you will see fully what you may not see now. Every, every judgment of the wicked is a just and good and, and holy, holy judgment. Now, uh, I want to move to another topic. Time is, uh, is passing by. So the sixth angel, verse 12, pours out his bowl on the great river Euphrates. Remember, that, that's picked up from the trumpet judgments as well. Remember the Euphrates is the border of the land of promise, and the other side is evil. So something quite similar to what we see before the kings from the east, perhaps the Parthians, at least the enemies of God, are on the other side. Clearly we see the unholy trinity here. We see the dragon and the false prophet and the beast. And he emphasizes their mouth. False teaching, I think. So, you know, some on the panel mentioned, I think, rightly, seduction. And, and, and where does seduction come from? It comes from teaching that is not in accord with the biblical revelation. So we, we have false teaching going on here. We have demonic teachings. But what, what is very interesting, he interrupts this by saying in verse 15, another parenthetical comment so these parenthetical comments are very important. Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. So what does he say to the church? Be vigilant. Stay awake. Don't fall asleep. Don't fall prey to this false teaching. Don't, don't be seduced because the world, society, life, can put us to sleep, right? We can, we can, we can, we can become spiritually drowsy. And, and, and we have a word here from John. This, this is a matter of great uh, sobriety and seriousness. So we must, we must stay awake. And then verse 16, and they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. I just want to say a quick word about Armageddon. Many movies and so forth and so on about Armageddon. Is, but, but notice this is the sixth seal. I think it's exactly right. I mean, the sixth bowl. This is the last battle. But I think we have another indication of the symbolic character of this book. I was, I was in Israel once, and uh, the, guy, the guide, a, a, a wonderful person, we're, we're in the valley of Megiddo, and he said, here's where the last battle is going to take place, right here. So right here in the valley. God bless him. I don't think that's right because I think John has sim uh, uh, signaled to us that this is symbolic. And why? Because he calls it the mountain of Megiddo. Har Megiddo. That means mountain. But Megiddo is not a mountain. It's a valley. There's no mountain there. The, 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 you know, people have tried to explain, oh, there's, some, there's a mountain, but it's a, it's a valley, it's a plain. And I think John is saying to the re readers, I'm talking about the last battle symbolically, using the image of mountains, probably drawing on other texts about mountains as well. So just, just another hint for the readers not to overly literalize what's going on in this text. So finally, the seventh, the seventh bowl, the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. Even if you don't agree with me on the sixth, the, the first six bowls, now, now it's over. There are flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunders and a great earthquake. Remember what I said, every time we have the earthquake, it's the end. So here we are again. He shakes that kaleidoscope again. Another picture of that final judgment that is coming. You know, it strikes me how Revelation is kind of like the first epistle of John. Because if you read the first epistle of John, he introduces a theme and then another theme and then he comes back to him. Have you noticed that? 
love, loving the brothers and sisters, keeping the commandments, confessing Jesus as the Christ. He talks about it, he talks about it, talks about it, and then he talks about it again. Then he talks about it again. So we have a very similar style here where he reintroduces themes, but what, what's the purpose? Why would you repeat themes a number of times? Well, to impress it on our consciousness, right? So, so that we integrate it into our thinking and into our lives. We, we, we need to be reminded of things we already know, right? And, and to present it in fresh and new ways. He doesn't say it exactly the same way. It's, it seals at home more effectively to our minds and our hearts. And, and, and I think it enters more into our imagination and into our thinking by, by the Spirit of God. So, he, he brings us to the end, but he also transitions to the next section. Because notice in verse 19, he says, the great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. So that, that, that is the theme coming up in chapter 17, 18, and the beginning of 19, the, the judgment of Babylon. I, I already mentioned this verse, but, but look at verse 20 again. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. So we, I think I have this here in my notes, but just flip over again to chapter 20, verse 11. That's clearly the end of history. Chapter 20, verse 11, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. This is clearly the final judgment. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And then we see in chapter 21, verse 1, the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. So this is John's way of saying history has come to an end. So now we come to the judgment of Babylon from chapter 17, verse 1, to chapter 19, verse 10. We have seen precursors of this in a couple of texts. Who is this woman? Well, first of all, what's the first thing that strikes us? He, he calls her Babylon, which is, of course, picked up from the Old Testament, the great enemy of the people of God, many Old Testament prophets declaim against Babylon. We can think of Isaiah, Jeremiah, and on and on it goes. Jeremiah has two very long chapters on the judgment of Babylon, Jeremiah chapter 50 and 51. So this city is not literally Babylon, is it? He picks up an image from the Old Testament and he applies it to his day. And in and, and verse 3, we read, he carried me away in the spirit, there's the spirit of prophecy, into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast. So this woman, this city is sitting on a beast that was full of blasphemous names, that's the beast, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet. She seems to be quite beautiful, right? adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup. Everything looks good so far, but he says, full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. Now, he's not talking about literal sexual immorality here, but as we see so often in the Old Testament, the prostitution described here with reference to Babylon refers to the city's idolatry. And I think chapter 17, verse 18 is helpful. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. What city is that? I think for the first readers and for John, that city is Rome. Rome, Rome is the great city. The, the beast, the Roman Empire, is supporting the city, so I think it stands for Rome, but I also agree 
with interpreters who say, again, Augustine, that it, Rome represents the city of man. So the city of man that is opposed to the city of God. So Babylon has been repristinated throughout history, and it is still true today, right? The city of man, which manifests itself in the cities in this world, Babylon represents the city of man opposed to the city of God. Now again, this is apocalyptic literature. There were Christians in Rome, right? Just as there are Christians in every city of the world. He's not saying, we ought not to interpret this to say, everybody in the city is evil. We also want to be careful to say, throughout the course of human history, there have been some cities that have been marked at least significantly by righteousness, right? Not perfect cities. So, so we don't, I don't want to simplistically lump every city into this category, and I don't think John's doing that. Remember, John, John always writes in bold colors contrasting good and evil, light and darkness, right? Truth and air. So that, that's, that's John's literary style uh, throughout. So, so Babylon represents the city of man opposed to the city of God, hum, human society, and we, and we feel that today. There are intense pressures on us as, as uh, believers. Now, I just want you to look at very quickly, I'm not going to read this in detail, he talks about these seven kings, who have five who, of whom have fallen. This is chapter 17, verse 10. One is, the other is not yet come, and when he does come, he must remain only a little while. This is maybe, it's hard to say, maybe this is the hardest passage in the whole book. What in the world is John talking about? I put it in the notes for you, right? Some people try to arrange it, so he's talking about seven literal kings. So I list... I list various emperors. Others try to apply it to a specific empire, starting with Egypt, for example. We can't get into the details of this in a survey. It is a very complicated matter. I, I would argue, but it's so difficult, it's hard to be sure, but I would argue that at the end of the day, None of these specific proposals work, and, and you're not going to be surprised by this by now. I think we ought to interpret the numbers symbolically. I don't think we can pin it down with specific kings or specific empires. Nevertheless, the attempt to do so will continue till the end of time. And uh, maybe, maybe there is an answer out there, and I just haven't, haven't seen it. But I think that's, I, I just want you to at least to, to uh, recognize that. Another, another element of this uh, chapter that I think is interesting, starting in chapter 17, verse 15, the beast and the ten kings turn against the harlot and destroy her. I find that, I find that very fascinating because what is he saying? Evil, evil turns in upon itself. Evil, at the end of the day, is fundamentally self-destructive, isn't it? So, so, I mean, again, I'm not trying to point, paint a literal picture here, but at the end of the day, evil collapses in upon itself. Of course, it's the judgment of God, but at the same time, because John even tells us, God put this in their hearts. So, so God has so arranged life that evil, evil finally will be destroyed. And uh, it, it, can, it cannot persist finally. And it, it, it's finally uh, self-destructive. Self then, then chapter, wow, the time is going by, is, not, is it not? Uh, chapter, chapter 18, we see the judgment of the harlot. I, I want to recommend to you as readers, read, read, read Ezekiel 26 through 28 especially. It functions as the background for what, uh, what John says here. But we see, we see in this uh, chapter that there's a mourning for the harlot, 
by kings and merchants. I would argue that the mourning that takes place, because the harlot falls, right? The harlot judges. The city of man is destroyed. And you, and you see the kings and the merchants and other mourning. And I would argue that is a literary device. That is not literally what happens. Because these kings and the merchants, they're part of Babylon. Babylon is the judgment of the whole world. So it's a literary device. But that doesn't mean it's not doesn't have a referent that's real. What's, what's the referent? There is great regret and sorrow that fills the heart of the unrighteous as their world unravels. So what, and what John wants us as readers to feel is the, is the tragedy, right? They deserve the judgment, but the tragedy of what's been lost right? They're, and, and, I mean, maybe one place to see it. Um, yeah, uh, verse, verse 21 uh, and 22. So, will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more? And the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. And craftsmen of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of the lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of a bridegroom and a bride will be heard in you no more. All the joys of life, the joys of weddings, the joys of music, it is, it is all, it is all, uh, it all is coming to an end. And of course, they deserve it, but, but how, how tragic that is, right? How, how incredibly sad in, in, in one sense that is. So that, that, that's, that's one picture of what's going on. I think there are multiple realities. Life is, life is complicated. So, so at one level, the judgment that is coming is, is sad. But there's another level, right? Pick it up in chapter 18, verse 20. What, what does God say? Verse 20, rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Chapter 19, he picks this up. I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Hallelujah for his judgments are true and just. Hallelujah, because he's judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah, Hallelujah. Why? The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God. All you, his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Now, does that seem wrong? <laughs> here, here is the final judgment of Babylon, and the saints are saying, and the angels, praise God, praise God, praise the Lord. Well, this is why I pointed out the previous theme. There's a sense in which John also communicates the tragedy of what's happened, right? This, the, there, there's a sadness in it. But, and I think this is very important, while we live on this earth, we pray for and long to bring good news of salvation to all people. We pray for those who persecute us, but this is the final judgment. Will we be sad? Will we regret? What's happened? No, we will fully see the wicked as God does. We will not be sad. We will rejoice. So as long as we live, right? We pray for, we long for the salvation of the wicked. But that, that is not this time. Now is the end. And when the end comes and we see the judgment of the wicked, no regrets. What God does is right. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord for his justice. So note, 
no regrets in, 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 in the new creation that's coming. Just, just joy and a recognition God has done what is right and good and true. Jonathan Edwards, I can't remember the name of the sermon, maybe one of these brothers does, uh, but he has a great sermon on this text that I, that I uh, commend to you, but it's late at night and I can't remember what it is. So, um, but, it, but, it's, but it's excellent. Now, they're not just praising God for that, they're praising God for the wedding of the Lamb, aren't they? The marriage of the Lamb has come, the bride has made herself ready, with, with, uh, with fine linen. So we have two women here, right? Two women here. The, the harlot and the bride. And we belong to the bride. And there's also great praise for the bride. The wedding, the wedding of the Lamb is coming. The messianic feast, so to speak. And there is great blessing for those of us who are part of this wonderful wedding feast. Well, uh, let, us, let us run on to chapter 19. I wish I could say more about that. But ni- chapter 19, verses 11 through 21. And I would argue, so you, you were here for the panel, at least most of you were here last night, I presume. So we talked about this passage briefly. I think this passage represents the final judgment. Jesus is coming on a white horse and he judges and makes war righteously, right? Verse 11, his eyes are a flame of fire. Remember we saw that in the vision in chapter 1? His eyes being a flame of fire are always used in judgment context. He comes with diadems as the ruler. Verse 13, he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. I want to make a particular point here. Some interpreters, actually quite a few interpreters, see this as referring to redemption and forgiveness, the robe being dipped in blood. But I want to argue that that is a misreading of what's going on here. And, and I don't have time again. Time is running by. But look at Isaiah 63. This is drawn from Isaiah 63. And clearly, and in that passage, Yahweh's robes are, have blood on them. It's the blood of judgment. And everything in this passage is about judgment. So I think it's, a, I think it's quite a dramatic misreading to say the blood here refers to the redemption of God's people. The whole context here is the context of judgment. So the armies of heaven, right, verse 14, the armies of heaven are arrayed in fine linen, white and pure. Those are the righteous, probably maybe angels and human beings. But we know why our robes are white, because of the, white, the, the, the blood of the lamb. They're following. From his mouth comes a sharp sword. Remember, the, the sharp sword is used consistently in Revelation as a word of judgment again. So everything in this passage is about judgment. By the way, post-millennialists, we didn't talk about this last night, but post-millennialists use this passage to talk about the progress of the gospel, but I don't think it fits the passage at all, right? This is not talking about the progress of the gospel. This is talking about judgment. So that maybe that comment was useless to you, but there it is. So um, just to throw something out like that quickly. He will, he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. Judgment, 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 right? I saw an angel standing in the sun. He picks up Ezekiel 38 and 39 here. With a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great, And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who had done the signs, and the two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. So I just read those verses to say, I don't think there's any window of this is the progress of the gospel, this is talking about redemption. I think this is a clear passage about the final judgment, and I take it 
that it's a comprehensive judgment. So that, that, is, uh, that is very important to me as well. Everyone's judged, the beast and the false prophet. I think, we talked about this in the panel last night, I think that's a problem in my mind with the traditional premillennial view. Because in the traditional premillennial view, there are unglorified saints on earth. But where do they come from? Because there's no indication here that anyone has survived the final judgment, right? So where, 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 where are these unglorified saints coming from? And I don't, I don't see how that works. Then we come to chapter 20. By the way, we talked about this last night, but I have the last word. <laughs> there we go. God is sovereign. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, <laughs> I am, I am, I'm not going to actually spend a lot of time on this, you know, because we talked about it last night. Um, I, but, I, but here's the first thing I want to say. The millennium is important. It's in the Bible. But it's not very important. It's a third-rank issue or maybe a fourth-rank issue. So it's not a very important issue. We like to talk about it, but it's not of vital importance. And here's one reason I know it's not very important. It's not talked about in any other passage specifically except for this one. That's one thing. Secondly, it ends. It ends. Whatever your view of the millennium, it ends. It doesn't last forever. It can't be as important as the new creation, but I would just want to say a lot of Christians want to talk about the millennium more than they do the new creation. But the millennium ends, so it can't be the most important thing. I think it's pretty obvious, right? So we can love each other, you know? <laughs> we, we, don't want to, we don't want to make it a test of orthodoxy. We, we don't want to say someone who holds a different view. None of us are post-millennialists, but we, none of us would say an evangelical post-millennialist is somehow heretical, right? We would embrace them as brothers and sisters, and I think you saw last night, we embrace one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, even though we have different views of this passage. So, I, I really, I said this very quickly last night, but I think the millennium is the first age of the new creation. So, so, you know, the typical premillennial view is the millennium is, is an intervening point, period of time where people are still dying, living and dying. Some people are, at least. But in my view, no, all the saints are glorified. No one's dying in, in the millennium because everybody's got a glorified body because the millennium is the first age of the new creation, is my argument. Uh, by the way, I recognize and I believe every millennial view has problems. My view has problems. There's no perfect solution out there, which is why I've really struggled with this view. That's why I've kind of gone back and forth. I don't think my view is, I think my view has problems too. I don't, th I don't think there's a, a, a view that we can just say, I've solved this once and for all. I would never claim that. But I take it, I take it now over against the amillennial view, and here I side with premillennialists, I think this binding is comprehensive, and it's the kind of things Eric said last night and uh, Adam, right? The, the, I think the language is symbolic, but I think it's quite comprehensive, and I think that's a problem for the all-millennial reading. I, I, don't, I, I think Sam made a great case for his view, so it's certainly possible, so, and I have argued that view elsewhere, but I don't hold it right now. So. The second, the second big problem for me is, the, as I said last night, the resurrection. That's even a bigger problem for me because he speaks of, verse 4, of them coming to life and reigning with Christ for a thousand years. Everywhere else that verb is used, it's used of Jesus coming to life in chapter 2, for instance, verse 8. It's clearly referring to the resurrection. And he describes it as a resurrection. This is the first resurrection. And everyone agrees that the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. That coming to life, everyone agrees, is a physical resurrection. So I think it's difficult to think that the first resurrection is, a, is the intermediate state. 
It's possible, but that's difficult for me to believe. And as I, this is very important to me. I mean, I just said it briefly last night that the that the final vindication of the saints is the intermediate state. I don't think fits with the rest of the New Testament. I think the final visit vindication of the saints is is the resurrection. Having said all that, I mean, since we had the panel last night, I love Sam and others who hold that view. Maybe they're right. Maybe I'm wrong. I'm, 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 I, I just couldn't get around that, uh, what, what is said here about the resurrection. So, what's the problem with my view? Actually, now that I think of it, I can't think of any problems. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding, I'm kidding. So, so w- what happens at the end of the millennium, right? At the, at the end of the thousand years, Satan gets out. My, my argument is, and not everyone's persuaded by it, I, th- I think it's still the best solution. We're told, we're told Satan gets out after a thousand years, and we're told in verse, what is it, verse 5, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. So my reading is at the end of the thousand years, Satan gets out and the wicked dead are resurrected. So who's joining Satan in the attack? Those who are dead, all the wicked. It's a cosmic attack by the wicked on the people of God, the city of God. Now here's an objection, one objection to my view. One objection is, well, some people might not agree that they joined in the attack, but I think that's a plausible reading. But another objection is, what's the point? There's glorified saints. And my answer is, evil's insane. The, the wicked, the wicked, what evil is fundamentally self-destructive. I'm not surprised at all. You know, people pound their heads against the wall. People kill themselves, right? At the end of the day, evil, evil makes no sense. So, I'm done. <laughs> you know, make up your own mind. You will anyway, you know? We don't have to linger too long on that because... Then, there, then there's the judgment according to works. I would argue that that judgment according to works in this context, I don't have time to defend this, but in this context is the judgment only of the wicked in these verses. That I, I, don't, I think there's a judgment according to works for everyone, but I, I think he's only thinking of the wicked here um, uh, in, in this particular passage. But Now, now uh, chapters 21 and 22 on the new creation. And I'm, I'm intending to try to finish by 9 o'clock. So I preached on this this morning. I realize you weren't all here. But um, I, w- I want to say, right, we have, I, I can just make some quick comments as we look at the text, right? First, we have a new heaven and a new earth. I would argue that's a new creation. And that new creation is this world transformed and purified. So just eschatologically, I would argue are the promises fulfilled physically found in the Old Testament? Yes, they are. They're fulfilled in the new creation, in the new heavens and new earth. So it isn't, it isn't an abstract, ethereal sphere. It's this world transformed. Of course, the language is very symbolic. He describes the, 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 the new creation as a city and as a bride. And, and, and I, in my sermon today, I put those together, right? It's a city and a bride, but it's the whole universe that's a city, right? That the whole universe is a city. The whole universe, so to speak, relates to the people of God, the bride, and the whole universe is a temple in which God dwells. John is trying to describe the indescribable. We, we cannot conceive what this new creation will be like, but it is the new Jerusalem, and it is, it is, it is from God fundamentally, and Sam said it so well at the end, right? Uh, fundamentally, what is so beautiful about the new Jerusalem, it's that we'll see God's face, that God dwells with us. It's, I said the whole world is his temple, right? 21.3, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them. So what makes this city so wonderful? It's not the gold, fundamentally, which I think is symbolic anyway. It's not the pearls, Right? It's, uh, it's, it's God. All, all, all of this points to God. He's trying to tell us God is, God is indescribably beautiful and lovely. And uh, what makes this city uh, 
so enthralling and satisfying is God himself. And he gives warnings, right? Warnings and promises. This, for the thirsty, you just have to drink, and you can be part of it. But for the wicked, there will be, there will be punishments. Okay, what else do I want to say quickly here? What we see in verse 16, I think this is very interesting. The city lies four square. I pointed this out this morning if you were here. Its length is the same as its width, and that is the, it, it is a perfect cube like the Holy of Holies. Look at 1 Kings 6.20. And the Holy of Holies is where God dwells. So that's symbolic language, right? The, 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 he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. 12 times 1,000, that's symbolic. And the city is 1,500 miles high, wide, and long. That's not literal, right? It's a picture. It's a picture of the new creation that is coming. And uh, verse 17, he measured its wall, 144 cubits. That's symbolic, 12 times 12. Right? He said that's a human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. Again, I mentioned this this morning. Oh, I got it, the angel's measurement. Yeah, I've been talking to a lot of angels lately, right? We don't know what an angel's measurement is. That's what he's telling us. It's symbolic. Don't interpret this literally. That's the very point of it. And, and the city has a wall, so there's protection in the city, and yet, I can't find the verse right now because I'm hurrying, and yet the gates are open, right? And there's no point having a wall if you keep the gates open. But his point is, his point is, it's totally safe. There's, there, there, there's nothing that can, that can happen to you. Or another picture, and you know, it struck me even as I was working on Revelation, even, even interpreters that take uh, who understand the symbolism sometimes strangely go to literalism. And, and what I have in mind is chapter 22, uh, verses 1 and 2. You have the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And some interpreters start talking about, yeah, maybe we get sick in the new creation. Really? That's not the point, right? The, the tree of life takes us right back to the early chapters of Genesis. Certainly, this is a picture and an image of the fact that, there's, that everything beautiful is in the new world that is coming. Well, my time is really up. I just, let me just say, I wish I could say more, but maybe I could encourage you to listen to my sermon this morning if you didn't, weren't here. Um, but verses 6 through 21 represents the conclusion of the book. And, and here I just noticed this is very similar to the opening of the book. He, 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 reaffirms, he reaffirms central themes that we, also, we found at the beginning, that reaffirmed at the end. Uh, may, maybe a quick word on verses 18 and 19 about adding or subtracting from God's word. So, I, I just want to say a couple things here. First of all, if, if you don't understand this first comment, don't worry or ask me a question. First of all, this, these verses do not speak to the issue of textual criticism. So, that, that, that endeavor to establish the text of the New Testament is a worthy endeavor, and we're not always sure, right? We have, I mean, our Bibles are, we have, we have good reasons to believe our Bible is very accurate, right? And, and, and transcribed very well. But, uh, but this text is not talking about engaging in textual criticism. Sometimes King James advocates read this text in very kind of weird, literalistic ways and condemn such an enterprise. This text is talking about denying clear teachings in the Scripture or adding to clear teachings. That, that's what he has in mind, because the, the, the judgment here is eternal judgment, isn't it? So he's not talking about whether a particular, what a particular verse 
the wording of a particular verse where there are different manuscripts with different readings. Now, I, I want to say again, our, our, New Testaments are, our New Testament is very accurate, but that, the textual criticism is a worthy enterprise. But let me, let me end where John ends, right? He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. That's a prayer to Jesus, isn't it? Come, Lord Jesus. Who's that addressed to? Jesus. The pattern in Scripture is, you know, Fred Sanders emphasizes this in his book on the Holy Spirit. I just read the pattern is to pray to the Father. But there are instances where we have prayers addressed to Jesus, and this is one of them. And, and I just would say as we close, that's a great prayer to pray. Isn't it? That should be the prayer of our hearts. Whatever your eschatological views, we can all agree on this, and we are all to pray this regularly. We, we pray, he'll wrap it up. Come, Lord Jesus, bring in, bring in your kingdom. Fulfill all your purposes. Receive all, all the glory. Uh, vanquish your enemies and, and reward, reward your your saints. That prayer will be answered, won't it? We don't know when, but it will, will be answered. He will come, and we will experience His grace. Let's pray one more time. Father, we do thank You for Your Word. We thank You for how encouraging and strengthening and even challenging the book of Revelation is. Lord, we pray that we would experience the blessing promised in this book, the blessing of hearing, truly hearing what's in this book. And Lord, not just hearing it, but, but keeping it. Well, Lord, I pray for each person in this room that we would heed the warnings found in this book, and we would also cherish the promises, and that we would be faithful until the end, Lord, keep each one of us, we pray. Lord, may we not wander from you. May you, by your Spirit and through your Word, keep us close to you until the end. Lord, keep us, each one of us, from any significant sin that would bring any, a reproach upon your name. And then, Lord, we pray for the saints throughout the world, especially those who are suffering. Lord, sustain them, strengthen them, May they be a witness in the midst of their suffering. May they testify to the gospel of Jesus Christ. May others come into the kingdom through their witness. Preserve your church, we ask. And Lord, we, we pray, finally, come Lord Jesus. Come Lord Jesus, wrap it up, fulfill all your purposes, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.